Look at that, that's impressive. You always quiet. Welcome to the first of this very exciting series of our 50th anniversary lectures. What you will see in front of you is a pile of these beautiful cards. Yep, okay? So there's three different cards in case you put two in the bin thinking you've already got one. One is about all the events we had during the year. One is about the big conference we're going to hold in June, on June the 4th, which is called Contemporary Dilemmas in Criminal Justice. And one is about our 50th anniversary lectures. So commit these to your memory, to your iPhone, to your calendars, to two them on your arms, because we expect and would hope to see you at all of these events, or at least at most of them. So... What we're doing for the anniversary lectures is that a, a, a series of people within the university, within the Centre of Criminology, are going to host these seminars. And the first host for this first of the anniversary lectures is Professor Roger Hood, who is no stranger to All Souls, no stranger to criminology, having run the place very successfully for decades, and having been in All Souls for how many years, Roger? <laughs> Well, 30 while I was a fellow, and now there's another 15, that inversion. Correct, that's forever. <laughs> so he's well. extremely experienced <laughs> in hosting seminars in general and certainly in this room. And he's going to host the seminar tonight, which is um, a wonderful event for us, uh, the first that marks our 50th anniversary lectures. Uh, so I'm going to pass over to him to say a little bit about the series, or at least about the, the purpose of the series, and then he can introduce our speakers to you. When I penned the last report as uh, director of the centre in 2003, I think the first line says something, criminology in Oxford is already over 50 years old. So you might wonder why we've got 1966 as 50 years old. Now, of course, as you know, in causation, it's very difficult to decide what starts something. But I would like to say that this college really played a very, very important part in the establishment of criminology in Oxford because in January of 1939, on the cusp of the Second World War, a German refugee scholar, Dr. Max Grunhut, who had been removed from his post under the Aryan laws of the Nazis in 1933, came here to All Souls. He had tried to come to England for five or six years, but... The main criminology post had been held for another famous uh, refugee from the Nazis, Dr. Herman Mannheim. And our guests this evening are from the Mannheim Centre of the London School of Economics. We have close connections because I was Mannheim's research assistant in 1957 and it started me out really on my career in criminology. Max Grunhut after the war, was the first person to be appointed as lecturer in criminology in this university. Actually preceding posts, other than at the LSE, established posts in criminology anywhere in the country. In 1950, he was made reader. Now, you have to understand that the post of reader meant something different in the 1950s. It was a kind of mini-professor in a subject which was new, small, uh, and didn't have a large department. But it was a very distinguished post, the reader in criminology at Oxford. And he was there for 10 years until he retired. And then in 1961, a Dr. Nigel Walker was appointed 
and after a period of five years working his way into criminology, he'd been a civil servant in the Scottish office, uh, he decided that Oxford needed a permanent place for research in criminology. Max Grunhardt had started in a very small way and indeed was one of the first scholars to get any research money from the Home Office uh, after the 1948 Criminal Justice Act had made funds available for criminological research. So Oxford had started off in this field. Nigel Walker decided to ask the Nuffield Foundation and the Home Office for a rolling grant which would enable the establishment of a penal research unit. I think at the time it was three researchers. How it's grown. Absolutely remarkably. And especially, I would be very happy to say, since I departed in 2003. Uh, it's much, much bigger. Uh, and more students and other things. Because then, the university had not been committed to it. So, it's a very important period since 1966 to look at where criminology stood uh, and what's been achieved. And in part, everywhere within this country and elsewhere, and how criminology has developed, and also, of course, here within Oxford. And we couldn't have anybody better to lead us off than my very old friends, David Downs and Paul Rock from the LSE and Tim Newburn. I first met David in 1961 when I went as a research officer to the LSE and David was doing a magnificent piece of research in the East End of London, published in 1966 as The Delinquent Solution. The Delinquent Solution. Um, Paul, I met... We decided now about 1967. We're not quite we think. sure. No. <laughs> but it was about that time. And I met Tim about 1989, I think. Uh, known him in the, in, the, uh, in the home office before. Now, the reason why this is very appropriate is that they've been entrusted with writing an official history of the development of criminal justice in England and Wales. Is that right? England and Wales? Yes, yeah. England and Wales, from 1959 until 1997. This has been a big task, as I remember you coming and talking about it several years ago. And uh, somebody who's done some of that long-term history, it's very difficult to do any of it and finish it within 10 years. So you're doing, you're doing fine. Uh, so they're going to talk today on the subject in the beginning. And I understand this is really to give us an idea and a perspective idea of what criminology was doing in 1966, uh, what the state of criminal justice and penal systems were, and what the major issues were that confronted the government and us, the scholars. So I welcome you. I think Paul Rock is going to speak first. Paul, as I should have said, been um, writing a great deal about penal policy, and particularly about the role of victims of crime. And his work is really outstanding. Um, and I should have mentioned Tim, of course, who hardly needs mentioning, because when I look through his list of publications, it seemed to me that he publishes eight books or articles or something else, and reports or newspaper pieces or appears on the television every year for the last 15 years. He is really fantastically productive across a wide range of fields. So we're very pleased to have such distinguished speakers. I've spoken too long. 
but I'm very, very pleased that they're here. Thank you very much. Um, I wasn't intending to say this, but it seems very apposite. When I was at Wolverhampton, I started criminology in a lift with people from uh, the, the, the conference, um, uh, and, and porters from the university were um, lifting large boxes around. I said to my fellow conference uh, members, at least criminology doesn't involve heavy lifting, and somebody said from the back, not unless you buy Tim Newburn's textbook. <laughs> it, seemed, it seemed absolute. As Roger has said, um, we were commissioned uh, to write the uh, history of criminal justice between 59 and uh, 97, and it seemed appropriate to review the state of affairs right at the beginning uh, when our history began. When this centre was founded, and I, the Sealer Council of Criminology, was one of the very few students studying criminology at this institution. Um, there were just uh, three of us, three graduate students, uh, one of whom uh, became remarkably successful, Kit Carson, who became, I think, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Adelaide eventually. Um, what follows is an abbreviated version of part of that uh, tour of the horizon and I'll try to convey something of the intellectual environment in which the new centre of criminology was placed. No doubt much of what I have to say will be familiar enough to quite a few of you, and certainly to Roger, who knows more about it, I think, than I do. Um, but uh, and we, we do forget the past, we reforge it, and it may be worthwhile repeating uh, what, in part, is common knowledge I want to remind ourselves not only of the palpable sense of anxiety and bafflement that crime inspired in the mid-1960s, but also of the apprehension that the new discipline of criminology lacked the capacity to do much to understand what was happening. Recorded crime, and this is where I picked myself, there we go, uh, rose continually until almost the end of the 20th century, and it rose steeply, and it rose for reasons that were obscure, it rose absolutely, it rose disproportionately when set against population growth. Um, although they might now appear, um, although they might now appear modest enough, official crime rates were almost invariably regarded by people writing in the 1960s as new, disturbingly large, extraordinarily rapid in their growth, largely inexplicable and indicative of a major and somehow perverse transformation of the society of England and Wales. They increased offended common sense arguments about what should have been the proper links between national prosperity, education, employment, want and criminality. Crime should have declined, not grown, after the Second World War. If I may be forgiven to alluding to him here and on this occasion... Leon Radzinovich, who was the uh, Wilson Professor of Criminology at the University of Cambridge, and perhaps the foremost criminologist of his day, remarked in 1965, and I've got a feeling that this slide went a bit haywire, um, uh, I put these things on slides rather than uh, read them out uh, for want of time and because it's tedious to, to, to have things recited. But there he was expressing his astonishment at the fact that crime which should have gone up when all other indices would uh, have promoted uh, a decline in crime, uh, it went uh, down. And like, in like vein, the very influential Lord Pakenham, the later the Earl of Longford, who became 
um, a member of the cabinet under Harold Wilson, um, remarked that uh, an article in the Times had prompted him um, to uh, form the impression that everything uh, that militated in favour of a decline uh, had operated uh, the opposite way. Changes in the figures appeared even more dramatic and threatening uh, when, was, as was often the case, and still is the case, what looked like quite humble numerical increases were represented as percentages. In 1969, for instance, the Secretary of State for the Home Department and the Secretary of State for Scotland reported in a memorandum uh, that uh, crime was shooting up in percentage terms, even though on inspection it's quite clear that the, number, the absolute numbers were fairly punitive by, puny by modern standards. And it seemed impossible as a result to disparage what was in train. A former colleague of uh, Rogers, Derek McClintock, opened a 1963 study of crimes of violence in London with the observation uh, that uh, there is major concern about uh, the incidence of violence in uh, capital. Criminality was thought to be mushrooming, especially uh, amongst the young. Uh, a third of all people uh, found guilty of indictable offences each year were under the age of 17 and a half under the age of 21 in the early 60s. And it seemed that there was something particularly awry with those who had been born in and around the wartime years, the so-called affluent teenagers, not affluent by today's standards, but uh, it was uh, a common enough expression, who should have had no pretext to offend. They were members of what were called the delinquent generations, personified by the teddy boys and other young hooligans whose upbringing had gone amiss. In 1965, the Conservative Party report... made the observation uh, that uh, that um, sorry um, yeah made the observation that uh, uh, this was a a problem of uh, major importance there was in short what David Garland was later to call a, a new experience of crime it was during this period that popular political and expert responses began to change. There was more property to steal, but crime was growing in volume even faster than the increase in the number of suitable targets, and it was being spread by an increasingly mobile population who could move about by car to victimise previously exempt households that for demographic and economic reasons of divorce and work pattern were less and less securely protected. Whatever stance they might privately have wished to take, And whatever policies they may have sought to promote, uh, ministers and home secretaries in particular of both parties were constrained throughout the period to convey publicly that they were aware that crime was mounting dangerously and that they were attempting tirelessly to confront it. R.A. Butler, who uh, on close inspection turns out to be less heroic than I think uh, some people have assumed, a very rather timid man whenever it came to dealing with difficult issues, was assailed with unremitting complaints about the crime wave from within the Conservative Party. And above all, with almost unanimous protests from party associations about the dilution of punishments, the abolition of corporal punishment, and plans to abolish capital punishment. Lord Windlesham, uh, who became uh, principal of Brazenose next door, recollected 
how R.A. Butler had talked about the blood-curdling demands made annually at the Conservative Party conference for the restoration of corporal punishment, which had quite clouded his time as chairman of the party. <coughs> and Butler himself talked about how, how he had, take, had to take an awful lot of opposition, including calls for birching and flogging, which haunted me almost every, every week of my time at the Home Office. There was a brief but abortive campaign by the uh, Anti-Violence League to stir up a populist revolt about what was uh, depicted as a craven response to crisis. And in January 1960, he wrote to the Deputy Chairman of the party and a former conduit for those protests and recriminations. Um, oh, I'm so sorry, I got muddled up. Yeah, that's it. Um, that the government is concerned about crime. He could not say otherwise. There were in public currency at least two um, dominant kinds of explanation to make sense of and manage uh, what was afoot. Both reflected the ethical, political, occupational and religious preoccupations of the observer. Gillian Tett may have said that the modern world is littered with pockets of specialist knowledge where technical experts work in mental and structural stylos, but her observation does not apply to crime. Uh, Alexander Patterson, the great prison commissioner, said everyone is interested in the criminal, everyone has views on the subject of crime. Crime impinges on all of us. An official who had joined the uh, Home Office at the time in the early 60s told me in an interview, the fate of the Home Secretary rather than the Transport Secretary is that everybody knows what the solution is. Everybody is his own Home Secretary. One explanation, which was more political and lay than scholarly, was a blend of common sense, moralistic theorising and popular psychology that distilled a number of anxieties about the condition of England. There was a collapse of discipline, especially in the home, mistakes in upbringing, the erosion of stable domestic life, and the socialisation of the young, that had been precipitated particularly by the dislocation of the Second World War, a growing involvement of women in the workforce and the breakdown of the conventional nuclear family. It was taken for granted that crime was, in the main, a breach of moral rules, whose roots lay in moral failings and whose explanation must be pitched in moral terms. It could take the form at one pole of the proclamation of simple imperatives and at the other of long omnibus and somewhat vague lists that tacitly invoke the principle that like causes like, that bad effects must have bad causes and pointed to the consequences of a decline in deference, defective socialisation, defective adherence to religious and ethical instruction defective school discipline, defective informal and formal social control, um, defects in the uh, content of the ever more consequential and ubiquitous mass media, horror comics, rock, rock, rock and roll, and indeed much of American culture in general. In the emphasis on the workings of informal social control, they were of course telling an important truth, and all of you will know that only a very minute proportion of uh, crimes known certainly to victims or even recorded by the police actually reach the courts and are punished and that informal social controls in one way or another are far more consequential. The other explanation, more in vogue in the university, correctional institution and clinic, was also a multifactorial potpourri that was perhaps not so very different from its vernacular counterpart. 
The academic study of crime was then, and David says I quote him to excess on this point, what David Downs would have called a rendezvous enterprise, eclectic, multidisciplinary, polycentric, and more heavily disposed to the empirical than the theoretical, the concrete than the abstract. Look at the very first uh, editorial um, in the British Journal of Delinquency, later the British Journal of Criminology. Now, if I've got it right, it should come up. Um, that it will, cont- it will contain a great mass, a heterogeneous mass of contributions uh, from across uh, different sciences. Crime, it was said repeatedly, could not be attributed to a single cause, but to a multitude of antecedent conditions that include the, psych- the psychological, the economic, the social circumstances of the offender. Each condition played its part. Um, and the explanation of crime is so complex, said Howard, Howard Jones, the earth author of an early textbook, that some criminologists have been led to abandon the quest for systematic theories and to lay emphasis instead upon causal factors. That was the theme of comparative criminology written by Herman Mannheim, who Roger has already uh, mentioned. And here, Nigel Walker uh, had a long list of almost every possible kind of explanation in his encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedic um, textbook, Crime and Punishment in Britain, published in 1965. Authors during that time were pioneers and knew that they were so. Nigel Walker talked about his textbook uh, as being um, uh, 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 innovative because there wasn't one, he said. My notes looked better when turned into a textbook. There wasn't one. And he certainly didn't write with confidence. Howard Jones said... Some may feel that claims of criminology to be called a science is very much open to question. Its methods, like those of other social sciences, are often highly subjective, and it's been able to establish, so far, no scientific laws that can claim general utility. They were members of a marginal utility uh, and knew them to be so, and they weren't wholly convinced of what they were doing. Lord Longford recalled when he talked to Barbara Wooten, who I think is... Um, an unjustly uh, neglected um, uh, in, uh, uh, criminologist of great importance. He said, when Mrs. Wooten was asked what help the criminologist could give to the Home Secretary today about the causes of crime, she replied, not very much. The substance and form of the criminology of the late 1950s and 60s flowed in some significant part from those for whom crime was a practical preoccupation. There were doctors, policy officials, psychiatrists, prison governors, and others who treated, measured, and managed the criminal. There were few others around to develop the craft. I overheard Roger say of criminology at the time, there just were very few of us there. They were professionally positioned at close quarters to their subjects, um, and it was they who, as a matter of course, supplied many of the data which we were to become the materials, uh, the catalyst, the context and products of analysis. Criminology was infused deeply in psychiatry, psychology and psychoanalysis. It was instrumental <coughs> because it had to be useful to reform and rehabilitation and correction. It was intended to make criminal justice and penal institutions effective and deviant. Decent, decent, not deviant. It was heavily quantitative. It was given to the construction of typologies, um, and it was uh, um, endlessly productive of lists. Let's see if I can find one. Um, there we are. 
talks all about uh, ambitious psychosociological psychosocial courses and the most recondite statistical particularity. Those test schedules and questionnaires um, epitomise how many people of influence thought research should proceed. One very influential figure was Tom Lodge, who was an, actuari- an actuarial statistician who was um, installed in the Home Office and um, first as a statistical advisor, then as a co-founder of the first uh, and first director of the new Home Office Research Unit. And what he said was. This is how the aims of criminology uh, should, criminological research should be uh, uh, um, envisaged. His list of desiderata admittedly stemmed from within government, but it, I think, captured a great deal of what, was, of what criminologists at large would have said. Nonetheless, despite all this, criminologists were very nervous about their fledgling science. Home Office officials were certainly unimpressed by the volume of quant- and quantity of criminology practice in the universities at the time. Sir Charles Cunningham, the Permanent Secretary, reminded Henry Brooke, uh, the uh, Home Secretary, see if we, I can get him up, um, that he was not at all impressed by what he had found um, when he toured the country, as it were, looking at what criminology was being done. I devoted some space in the official history to the evolution of the proposals to remedy that situation, first by establishing the Home Office Research Unit and almost simultaneously the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge. In 1957, uh, the head of the unit, Tom Lodge, said, and this is really quite a large quote, forgive me, but it was to look at... um, um, it was to remedy the deficiencies of the universities. But there were limitations. Nothing was happening in the universities. And the Home Office had to rely upon itself. What was happening was regarded as unimpressive. Um, What um, happened was that the Home Secretary told the House of Commons at the time that some useful work has been done, but nonetheless... Uh, what we must do is spend our own money in order to establish a research program. I won't, I'm I'm conscious of the shortness of time, but that was the pretext for finding the Home Office Research Unit, which for uh, quite a considerable period, I think, and very badly uh, um, treated by academic criminologists, uh, produced a really quite uh, monumental program of work, very well funded with a large uh, uh, quantity of staff, and I think too little appreciated by the academic criminologists of the time. Um, the unit grew, and it grew in a benign climate, and uh, it was uh, quite clearly um, uh, um, uh, utilitarian. The other principle of innovation, the new Institute of Criminology, was to be established at Cambridge, outside the Home Office, and it was the twin of the new research unit. Tom Lodge remarked that one should not ignore the close links between the Institute and the research unit and their common origin and the forces that for many years have been building up to make inevitable the development in Great Britain of scientific criminological research. Um, 
I don't propose, for reasons of time, to go into the reasons, uh, to, uh, the origins of, the, uh, of, of that. But nonetheless, let's see if I can get it up. Um, it was um, thought that uh, it would be a good idea to have a companion institution which would do very much the same sort of work, but free of um, direct, government, uh, direct government influence. It had a practical bent. Uh, Leon Rod uh talked about systematically planned research uh, could build up a body of objective information and the solution of more fundamental issues. It may be seen in Garland's phrase that criminology in England and Wales began life as an institutionally based, administratively oriented discipline, and that that orientation had been reinforced in the new organisation created new organisations that had been created to take it forward. Organisations that uh, Ian Lode and Richard Sparks would later say were peopled by associate members of loosely affiliated liberal elites. It remained in that vein for some substantial time. But it also started in the 1960s to betray the impact of the importation of a better established, more robust, vigorous and avowedly American criminology. There were the first stirrings of what were called labelling theory. The doctrine that informal and formal social control also makes its mark in constructing criminal and deviant behaviour. There were the beginnings of talk about anomie and uh, personified on my left by David Downs in his Delinquent Solution. Relative deprivation, culture and subculture, and the impact of rising expectations in a society marked by structured social and economic inequalities. For some, anime theory promised to resolve the seeming paradox posed by the presence of youthful crime in the midst of plenty by arguing that conditions of rapid social change and apparent prosperity, when controls were weakened and all were supposedly motivated to achieve material rewards in an unequal world, the young and relatively deprived, might experience frustration. And um, Barbara Wooden put this very well. Um, It was, she thought, the solution to the apparent conundrum um, which uh, uh, Radzinovich and Longford had talked about. There was to be an emerging schism within the coalition of practical and academic criminologists. For what period, and whilst the number of academic criminologists had been small, the two wings that had to collaborate together, sometimes uneasily in meetings, seminars, editorial boards and conferences, but they started to draw apart towards the latter half of the 1960s as a new and distinct sociology of crime and deviance began to emerge, partly under the spell of its American sister discipline, partly un- under the impact of a new radicalism on the street and its resuscitation of what Taylor, Walton and Young called the tradition of grand sociology and partly in response to the growth of a critical mass of boisterous young Turks, that was us once upon a time, (laughs) which coalesced as the universities expanded and junior staff were appointed en masse. The schism was underscored by Hugh Clare, the chairman of the Howard League, uh, who set up the first uh, British Congress of Crime in 1966, and he reported that he was disappointed at the outcome of his attempt to bring them together. Minutes of the meeting of the Howard League's executive committee recorded um, that how um, incomprehensible um, 
a lot of what was being talked appeared to its members. Two years later, there was an even more consequential fissure within the body of criminology at the third national conference organised by the University of Cambridge. A group of renegades discovered that they had become numerous and confident enough to decamp to found a new and independent national deviancy symposium at the University of York in conscious opposition to Cambridge's national conferences. They effected what David Downs called a deliberate break with what was seen as the stranglehold on the subject by the orthodox criminology of the South East. But scepticism was more endemic still. It spread beyond the schismatics and those whom they castigated to pervade the entire body of criminology. It was not as if any significant portion of the world of academics, practitioners, policymakers and politicians took uh, what Wooten had called the factual and quantitative basis of generalisations about human affairs to be secure. Within government and the university, there were widespread and grave uncertainties about what passed for assured knowledge about crime and justice. And there were particular doubts about the meaning and reliability of the statistics of recorded crime, which underpinned reports about individual instances and classes of offending. Uh, Lord Longford said at the end of the 1950s, um, I'm almost done, uh, that uh, there was an appalling incapacity uh, in our measurement. And Radzinovich said the most difficult and one of the most imperfect all branches of statistics, difficult to compile, uh, difficult to comprehend, and difficult to interpret. In somewhat tardy recognition of those failings, the Home Secretary of the time, Henry Brooke, established the Departmental Committee on Criminal Statistics um, in June 1963. Uh, but it, it uh, I think, confessed to failure. It uh, was unable uh, to deal with uh, uh, the problem of what was called uh, the dark figure of crime, the crime that was not reported to the police. Um, and it was only very much later, in the 70s, when Richard Sparks, the other Richard Sparks of, uh, uh, at, was he at the time in the Institute, I think? Yeah. Uh, and with uh, uh, Hazel Genn, uh, produced the first crime survey, which was followed later on by the British Crime Survey of 1981. And there remained the, the disquieting, um, uh, 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 abiding disquiet about the condition, funding and potential capacity of criminology. Despite the foundation of the two research centres in London and Cambridge, Despite the growth of externally funded research, criminology was thin. It continued to occupy a tenuous position in the academy. It lacked numbers, coherence and authority. Gordon Rose, another criminologist of the time, said, the criminologist is a humble man and only too well aware of his failings. He has achieved a mild degree of respectability too recently to be anything else. When I was interviewed in this institution in 1966, that recently, by Max Beloff, um, I was, uh, when I was being um, promoted from probation and be lit to DPhil, I was asked over and over again to spell criminology as if it was some distasteful alien word. <laughs> <laughs> Academic criminology certainly had not led to enlightenment. Roy Jenkins said in late 1966, we're still shrouded in a considerable fog of ignorance. And on another occasion in the same year, he said, I don't think any of us can say why there is a crime wave. There are various theories, we do a lot of research, we try to improve our knowledge, but I think it would be a very arrogant man who said, I know why people do criminal acts. 
Criminology had failed to produce any solid causal explanation of patterns and movements of crime. Perhaps its only achievement had been to debunk existing theories. In what Anne Oakley, her biographer, described as a blistering attack on the confusions of criminology and the arrogance of social workers, Barbara Wooden said, up to now the chief effect of precise investigation into questions of social pathology has been to undermine the credibility of all the current myths. Perhaps it should be noted that criminological self-doubt has never deserted the discipline. Fifty years later, precisely the same lament could be heard. Lucia Zedner said, Whatever the causes of its disgruntlement, there could be few disciplines whose leading protagonists are so ready to denounce their common project as a failure. The examined criminal academic life is never perhaps worth living. So, thank you. I, I don't have any uh, PowerPoints to offer, I'm afraid. Um, what, part of our division of labour is, is, is that um, carving up this vast field into different subjects. My, 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 my field is, is that of penal policy. Um, and uh, one of the first things I tried to uh, tackle was the whole question of what happened to policy on uh, long-term prisoners under conditions of maximum security in the 1960s. Um, the, the, the whole period, really, um, leading up to the mid-1960s in the penal field was, was one of, of, of optimism. Um, it's easy to forget that. And... Uh, in between the wars, there had been roughly stability in, in the prison population, despite the crime rate uh, more or less doubling in the 1930s. Um, Alexander Patterson's already been quoted by Paul as embodying that, that optimism about liberal forms of, of humane um, treatment in, in the penal system, especially as far as young offenders were concerned. And the Borsal system was held up to be um, really the uh, acme of, of that whole approach, about which Roger has uh, written a, a pioneering study. Um, the mid-60s, however, brought about a, a, a fundamental change in, in, in the whole perspective on, 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 on the penal system. Um, and this was partly because the number of prisoners had uh, mushroomed from 21,000 or so in 1955 to 30,000 in 1965 uh, and doubling uh, from 1955 level to 1970. Um, and escapes in particular had uh, uh, mushroomed from 88 in 55 to 522 in 1965. Now, most of these were from open prisons, but it was certain spectacular escapes rather than increasing the rates of escape that triggered off uh, the storm. Um, neither the prison commission nor 
the Home Office uh, officials more generally had seen the problem of liberalising regimes without tackling at all uh, fairly obvious um, shortfalls and deficiencies in security. All of this could be handled until the new kids on the block, um, as it were, in crime terms, uh, started to escape in rather spectacular fashion. For example, Ronald Biggs' escape from Wandsworth in uh, 1965. A bit like an Ealing comedy in some ways. Um, There there was a a converted removal van with, with a hole cut in the roof for the prisoner who managed to scale the wall uh, and as a rope ladder was thrown over it, that was uh, not too difficult, uh, to then jump onto the roof of this van and, and off you go. Again, that might have been handled by the Home Office in a fairly intact perspective, as it were, of um, everything more or less being okay until a much more devastatingly uh, spectacular escape occurred from Wormer's Scrubs by um, the spy um, George Blake who uh, was assisted in his escape by two members of the Committee of a Hundred Pat Pottle being being one of them Um, and again this was relatively easily done it made this uh, uh, Tenny Bottoms had said the Home Office uh, something of a laughing stock Um, because uh, Blake's um, escape was at a time and on a Saturday, I think it was, when uh, only one or two guards were guarding a whole wing. Uh, he kicked in a rotting window frame, jumped down a roof and so on, uh, onto a, the wall and, and was away. Um, there, there was therefore a problem. What's to be done? Um, and in the political... Um, Furore that ensued, in which the uh, Tory opposition um, uh, were mounting uh, um, censure, motion of censure against the government. Um, Roy Jenkins, the, the Home Secretary, decided to appoint a leading political figure, a leading national figure rather, Earl Mountbatten, to head an inquiry, uh, ordering an immediate security review. Uh, which would be um, reporting within a few months. In fact, um, Mountbatten, in in legendary fashion, (coughs) reported within six weeks. Um, uh, He was accompanied by a few assessors, uh, one of whom was Robert Mark, who later on became Chief Constable of London. Um, Why why was Mountbatten appointed? It was was mainly because, I think, a a heavyweight figure was needed to reassure the public that everything would ultimately be under control. Um, But one of the problems, I think, with the successful politics of that was that it was something of a rebuff to the Home Office culture of the day, which was still very... um, uh, attached to, to the liberal hopes and the optimistic uh, reforms of the uh, embodied in the Borsal system. Um, uh, one very senior uh, figure or, or who was very much a, a, a newcomer to the Home Office in the 60s but went on to very high office in the Home Office 
uh, actually called um, an interview um, about Batten and um, Monson, who was the inspector of prisons, dictatorial. Uh, and, and, and it was generally felt to be in many ways an affront uh, that such a figure had been appointed to lead this inquiry. Um, so, nevertheless, the major recommendations of Mountbatten were accepted, which was uh, that there should be the well-known testification of prisoners in terms of uh, their escape risk posed and, and the danger that that would uh, constitute to society uh, category A prisoners uh, numbering around 120 at the time uh, Mountbatten uh, reckon, reckoned uh, and there should be an all round improvement in the uh, security of prisoners um, holding uh, category B prisoners who were somewhat less dangerous but still very escape prone um, the only recommendation of Mountbatten that was not accepted was that there should be a single prison constructed on the Isle of Wight what he called Vectis um, which should hold all the most uh, at risk of escape prisoners who constituted some sort of recognisable danger to the public if they should escape. And that was the only recommendation that was not immediately um, accepted in full. It was uh, accepted in principle, seemingly, uh, but the task of constituting a regime for that prison was given to the uh, a subcommittee of the newly appointed Advisory Council on the Penal System. Uh, headed by Kenneth Younger, and uh, Leon Radzinovitz was chosen to be the chair of that subcommittee, along with Leo Abs, uh, Leo Absi, a Labour MP who was to the fore in the abortion law reform and homosexual law reform campaigns, uh, the Bishop of Exeter, uh, Peter Scott, uh, a leading psychiatrist who'd written about delinquency at the Maudsley Hospital in London. Um, whereas Mountbatten had taken a very short time to report the Radzimbic committee took considerably longer well over a year and there was some sort of concern in the Home Office that things would not be uh, brought in um, quickly enough for, for example on April the 7th 1967 Sir Philip Allen replied to Radzinovitz uh, that it would be, um, sorry, um, Alan wrote Radzinovitz basically asking for uh, a time, a deadline, it sounds rather like the Chilcot report in a way, but it was a much shorter time. Uh, when, when would this be ready? Uh, as uh, Mountbatten had suggested, a completion date for his report uh, for the prison to be built by the J June 1969, only two years away by that point. Um, and uh, Radzinovich wrote back to say it would take rather longer to report because they wanted to do a study of comparative prison systems uh, as well as you know, conducting some of their own research. Um, the interesting questions I think rising from the, this whole concentration versus dispersal issue which eventually emanated from the report of the 
rather than its subcommittee, is um, that Mountbatten's report came to be seen as the most illiberal document. It, it was seen as having uh, unnecessarily raised the stakes in terms of security uh, so as to wrench the system quite disproportionately in that direction. Um, and it also led to the question on what grounds and by what means was the major recommendation of the report of Mountbatten rejected. Um, one of the most significant documents, strangely neglected in, in the field, is a book by Leo Abstin, one of the four subcommittee members, called Private Member, which was, was published in 1973. Sorry? He was a Freudian, and I think it was a difficult pun. Right. Um, the book gives a sort of amazingly um, full account of a, a, a Machiavellian strategy which Absey concocted to persuade uh, the subcommittee not to accept Mountbatten's proposal for concentrating all prisons in one place but to rather disperse them around other three or four other prisons um, and a key um, argument that he advanced was and this was apparently um, something he persuaded the other members of the committee to accept was that there should be an arming of guards of the perimeter um, to um, really um, mimic the American system uh, which, which had great success in the States if you have an armed perimeter you know, it, it does cut down the likelihood of escape um, but it would also in, in the view of the resident of its subcommittee um, also minimise uh, having minimised the risk of escape would maximise the possibility of liberal regimes being pursued in the prison so th this, this was uh, a strategy um, partly uh, propagated by ABSI in order to deflect liberal opinion from the main issue, which was rejecting Mountbatten, to um, the side issue of arming prison guards. <coughs> and in a sense it worked, uh, because there was a general outcry against the army of prison guards on the perimeter um, and when the actual issue was discussed in the, in the meetings of the advisory council um, in, indeed it did tend to dominate proceedings so having rejected that um, members of the committee were, far, were rather more prone to accept the um, rejection about Batten's major, major proposal and accept the dispersal uh, alternative um, there, were, there were some issues concerning how the uh, Mount Batten proposal came to be so stereotyped um, as uh, a somewhat illiberal proposal even though Mount Batten himself had pr proposed the, the rather like the Radzinovich committee there should be a liberal regime made possible by an invulnerable perimeter. 
Um, that that was um, indeed um, a similarity between the two reports, and and in the end, I think it's what unites the uh, two uh, reports um, and and the liberal principles that underlay them that. that uh, has enabled us partly to avoid the supermax prison uh, system which has operated to um, dire effect in America. And even in so liberal a society as, as the Netherlands, that there, there is a supermax prison. We've managed to avoid that. And I think that that partly is because um, there was some sort of a similarity in the Mountbatten and Radzinovitz uh, proposal. But the, the whole issue <coughs> of why Mountbatten was in the end rejected does seem to have been um, partly due to the stereotyping of the Mountbatten report as itself illiberal and also due to the uh, ABSI strategy of uh, Introducing armed guards as, as a major recommendation. Um, the economic angle that Victus would have cost rather a lot of money. Okay, sorry. Um, it's very, very difficult to um, actually get to the bottom of. Um, uh, this is the sort of difficulty one faces. In, in pursuing the history um, a file for example a treasury file labelled vectors had nothing whatsoever to do with vectors <laughs> contained a very detailed description of a, a, a prison built three years earlier um, and not even related to, to the building of vectors so there's no evidence as, as far as I can find um, that, that the sheer cost of the project was what in the end ruled it out but it was quoted by James Callaghan who took over the Home Secretary as, as a key reason for rejecting the Mountbatten proposal and accepting the alternative um, right I'll Very good. Call, it, call it a day thanks I'm going to stand there. I'm going to take my glasses out of my mouth. I'm going to talk quickly. Uh, see if I can do this. There. Good. Is it up? Brilliant. We're in business. Um, thanks everyone for coming. Um, I'm going to keep this. We, we've overstayed our welcome already in terms of talking. No, so I'm going to keep it. You've got uh, ten minutes. Ten? <laughs> About. Give me a call. Give me a call in six. I'll I'll do this. I'll try and do this really quickly. So, um, let me start by saying um, thanks. I'm really grateful to Carolyn and colleagues for inviting us. It's a real. It's a pleasure to be here and to be marking the 50-year anniversary. Um, I'm extremely grateful to Roger um, for two things. Firstly, for the, um, in my case, undeserved but very generous. 
introduction, but more particularly for his comment that this kind of work can't be done in at least less than 10 years, which makes me feel ever so slightly less guilty about the extraordinarily glacial progress that I seem to be making, certainly when compared with my young, boisterous young Turk colleagues. <laughs> so uh, what I'm going to do is talk about policing very briefly. So I'm, in this official history, I'm responsible for a bunch of things, um, writing about policing and probation and juvenile justice and with David, drugs and politics, various other things, um, most of which I haven't done. Um, but policing, I'm going to talk about 1966 and, and policing. Some of this will be familiar to some here, be especially familiar to Ian Loder, who's written um, considerably and in detail about this subject, um, most particularly uh, with Egan Mulcahy in Policing and the Condition of England. So, what did it look like? Um, policing in 1966, I would say, looked very like policing looked in 1956. Um, not far off 120 police forces of varying size, the smallest of which in West Yorkshire had a, an establishment of about 93, I think, in the, in the mid-1960s. Um, in the lead-up, there'd been a Royal Commission and a major police of legislation, the Police Act 1964, and yet very little change. In fact, to the extent that there was any really significant change, it didn't begin until somewhat later. Um, and largely as a consequence of the arrival of Roy Jenkins, who's been mentioned several times, who has more of a role in recent British policing history than is he's sometimes given credit for, I think, not least his role in forcing through amalgamations of police forces to reduce this 120 or so constabularies down to something more manageable, but also in the promulgation of kind of new forms of policing, things like unit beat policing, which I haven't time to talk about right now, but which, again, he played a pretty central role. Um, so let me go back before I go forward. Um, the Royal Commission. Why a Royal Commission? Well, sometimes the Royal Commission is, tends to be presented as the kind of logical outcome of the things that preceded it. There were a series of scandals besetting policing, most of them very small, but um, concerning the conduct of officers, junior and senior, um, the behaviour of corruption cases, conflict between police forces and uh, the local police authorities. There had been a variety of other things going on, but these were all pretty small beer. There were concerns about budgets and money. Uh, there was a significant issue of police pay, um, there was, as both David uh, and Paul have talked about, rising crime, and by the standards of the period, significantly rising crime, and in the background also there had been race riots in the late 1950s in Nottingham and Notting Hill. And yet, none of this really explains the Royal Commission. There was no interest in the Home Office in having a Royal Commission. Um, to the extent the, the Home Secretary, Rab Butler, wanted a Royal Commission, he wanted a Royal Commission on, on the penal system. He arrived in the Home Office really keen to do something similar to what he'd done in education in the Home Office, but punishment in the penal system was what he was concerned about. The reason we had fundamentally had a Royal Commission was his mishandling of one of the scandal cases in the Houses of Parliament, which led to a motion of censure against him, which he dealt with, as politicians from time to time do, by announcing a commission of inquiry, which turned in to the Royal Commission. But I had his sights set on other things. 
It was an accident in many respects, linked to those previous things, but nonetheless accidental. The Royal Commission itself, so I've said, a period of not very much change, that is leading up to 1966 and where we find ourselves. The Royal Commission, final report, generally remembered for its construction of what we tend to call the tripartite structure of police governance, but it wasn't really much of a creation, it was more of a tidying up exercise in many respects. Um, it took a very positive view of police-public relations, extraordinarily part of the optimism of the times that Paul and David have talked about. It changed the complete complaint system, but not much. It rejected any idea of some independent element in police complaints. Most radically, it recommended that the Home Secretary be made responsible statutorily for the efficiency of the police. And then perhaps most famously, it rejected the idea of nationalisation. Nationalisation, which had been, or nationalisation, a combination of nationalisation and regionalisation, which had been put forward by one of the Commission's members, Arthur Goodhart, who was Master of University College, I think, here. Yeah. Um, such an impressive report, his dissenting report at the end of the Royal Commission, that one commentator, and I will just read this, but you can read it for yourselves, but it's lovely, described the Royal Commission's report as 22 pages by Dr. Goodhart with a preface seven times as long by a faintly admiring syndicate of diplomats. <laughs> Wonderful. So that was the Royal Commission's final report. Translated fairly quick, well, not that quickly, within two years, but, but fairly smoothly into legislation, what we now know as the 1964 Police Act. 64 Police Act acted upon most of the recommend, or many of the recommendations of the Royal Commission, so a new tripartite structure, some changes to the police complaints system. But in terms of the thing I want to just focus on for my last two or three minutes, structure of policing, it too, like the Royal Commission, rejected the idea of a national police force. Indeed, it went further than that. There'd been very significant debates within the Royal Commission about what the problem of nationalising the police was. And there was clearly a view among some members, um, and also within the Home Office, that nationalising the police, putting the police, quote, in the hands of a single individual, might be seen as some sort of threat to liberty. The beginnings, in some ways, the slippery slope to a police state, and so forth. Those broadly in favour of that within the Commission won the argument. And there's a passage in the Commission which says very straightforwardly that there's no in-principle problem with nationalising the police, simply this is not the time or the moment. The Home Office, crucially, uh, in the period afterward, briefed very strongly against what I would see as, at least, as I've said, the one of the Commission's uh, most radical proposals, which was to make the Home Secretary statutorily responsible, still not saying it properly, for the efficiency of the police, which didn't make it into uh, the Police Act, thereby, in part, I think, neutering the proposals of the Royal Commission. Um, I better dive on. So back to the policing landscape in 1966. We've had a Royal Commission, a rather timid Royal Commission in some ways. We've had a Police Act, which acts largely on that Royal Commission's recommendations, but doesn't even go as far as 
the Royal Commission. But the circumstances in 1966 are worse now. Very significant. We just take the things that I listed in relation to the establishment of the Royal Commission. Well, crime's going up. We went back to Paul's bar chart that he put up. The rate of increase of crime prior to the Royal Commission is as nothing to what's been happening in the period since, through to 1966. Budget constraints are getting worse. The economy is now not that strong. And there are very significant worries about how the police will cope and concerns about efficiency, which is why things like unit B policing and so forth, or at least in part, come about. Even though the Royal Commission, though it wasn't initially established to do so, dealt with police pay, this is back on the agenda and a significant political issue by 66. And policing scandals haven't gone away. For those who know their policing history, there was Harold Chaloner, the famous Sergeant Chaloner of West End Central Police Station in London, the Sheffield Rhino Whip case, all worth looking up if you fancy them. Um, scandals continued apace and would get worse. And yet, all was calm, largely within the Home Office. Officials were largely undisturbed by all of this. A broadly optimistic view, as with much of penal policy, but of policing, held sway. And I would say that so little had changed was a reflection of, and Ian has argued this, a reflection, at least in part, obviously of the social and political conditions of the time, but also the nature and style of official reasoning. A broadly Whiggish view of history still held sway within the Home Office extremely strongly, took the view that whatever the problems, the British Police Service was, quote-unquote, probably still the best in the world and was to be emulated and so forth, and that change, if there was to be change, was a classic Sahamfrism. If there was to be change, it should occur slowly, incrementally, and organically. Not pushed and not radically, and certainly not steered, steered, as it were, in radical ways by the Home Office. On top of that, there was a broadly utilitarian concern with limiting the powers of the state, whether that be local but also national. But on top of that, I think, there was... And this forced the hand in many ways of the Royal Commission and then lay behind the way in which that was put into legislative practice in 64. There was a desire to protect the way the Home Office governed. There was a desire to protect what one might call the soft power of the Home Office, working to influence behind the scenes rather than explicitly being held to account in Parliament for all that it did. And so if I haven't outstayed my welcome, the final slide... The legacy. So I talked about structure and where we come from. The Royal Commission, as I've said, was pretty timid. It um, rejected uh, nationalisation. It largely defended the status quo. It did argue that the number of forces that existed could no longer be tolerated and should be reduced, but it gave absolutely no sense beyond suggesting that perhaps 500 officers was the smallest you could live with. No sense in principle of how modern British policing ought to, what the principles for the reorganisation and the future of British policing should be. It defended localism, but entirely on the basis of negative rather than positive arguments. And yet, I would say, in some respects, it remained more radical than the Home Office at the time, which is the break on reform. So just sticking in the final word on structures. Arthur Goodhart had argued strongly and I would say to many eyes convincingly in favour of regionalising or nationalising 
the police. At the time he did so on the Royal Commission, there were several members who agreed with him, but who in the end decided not to sign his report, or rather to sign the official report, on the basis that they felt that this was a political strategy for getting other things that they wanted through. However, the actions of the policymakers, of Henry Brook then as Home Secretary, and as those who saw the act through Parliament, dismayed many members of the Royal Commission. They were very unhappy about losing some of their more radical proposals, and also the way in which officials, including the Home Secretary, set their face against any form of major structural reform of policing. By 1967, the deputy chair of the commission had come out very publicly in a major public speech to say he now favoured nationalisation of the police. It prompted a Sunday Times journalist to ring up all the other members of the commission and found out that actually they all now, or a majority of them, there were still a number who were tied to local authorities, but apart from them in the main, all members of the Royal Commission, apart from those few, now favoured nationalisation. The chairman, Sir Henry Willink, uh, refused at the time, quite properly, possibly, to answer the journalists' questions, but it seems he too had changed his mind. By 1970, in his still unpublished autobiography, a very short autobiography in which he says almost nothing about the Royal Commission on the Police, bar a page and a half or so, in a little blue ink scribbled at the bottom of one of the pages is a little amendment, a little addendum to what he'd written, in which he says, this is written in 1970, I assume it was going to be inserted into the final copy, the final manuscript. In retrospect, Willink said, I think the Commission's policy of larger units was right in 1962-64. To nationalise would at that time have been to move too fast echoes of the Home Office. And a Conservative government would not have accepted Dr Goodhart's scheme. It may now, or soon underlined, be right to unify the whole force. That was, what, 46 years ago, almost. We still have 43 constabularies in England and Wales, and at no point in the intervening period have we had policymakers willing seriously, I think, to consider what the members of the Royal Commission, by the end of the decade, were willing to countenance. Thank you. Those are three very, very interesting papers. I'm sure you'll agree. And I'm sure there are questions for the speakers. Who would like to begin? Somebody has to. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that strikes me, that was hugely interesting, one of the things that strikes me about this enterprise is that you're all more or less um, been asked to kind of go over and retrace and recover events and practices that you spend large parts of your working life um, investigating, observing, commenting upon. And you're also going over a period in which there is a kind of, uh, for the sake of argument, it's called it a kind of received view about what's happened um, over this period in relation both to the particular and in the, in the in general. 
um, a received view that to some extent you yourselves have contributed, contributed to. And I just wondered against that backdrop, um, has engaging yourself in this process, have you come across anything that surprised you? Now, or led you to revise anything you previously thought about? May, may I say something very quickly, because this is something that struck me. I, I, I taught criminology for a very long time, up to retirement age, and I was massively disconcerted to discover that when I embarked on this official history, I had really known very little about the subject, <laughs> very little about criminal justice. I mean, two of the tasks that I set myself, partly on instruction from the Cabinet uh, Office, was to look at the set, setting up of an independent prosecution service under the 85 Act, and secondly, the abolition of assizes and court sessions and the establishment of a Crown Court. To the best of my knowledge, those have never, ever been covered in any of the historical literature. So it, it was, as it were, a venture into virgin territory. That was the first thing. So it wasn't as if this was familiar um, uh, terrain in, about which I had uh, received, received opinion. The second thing was, and um, Tim has hinted at it, was across the board, as far as I, can, I, I was concerned, there were a number of themes which I don't think have been very firmly addressed in uh, our literature. Uh, the impact of utilitarianism in particular, uh, Whiggish themes inherited from the 1830s and 1840s about the distrust of the state. You talked about in the connection with policing. That certainly was very evident. And everything ben Benson said about the arbitrary dispensing power of a, of a prosecutor uh, were being said uh, under the Royal Commission on Criminal Procedure uh, uh, over 100 years later. Uh, certainly being said about the setting up of a unitary court system. So it, it, those themes... And the third thing is that, uh, going back to some of my earlier, uh, my earlier observation, um, and the importance of informal social control as, as the dynamic of regulation, and the inability of the state effectively to influence that, there was a great deal of what Dimaggio and Powell called rituals of rationality. We don't know what we're doing, but we ought to try, as it were, to look as if we were busy. And the business consisted of what uh, Harold Wilson and others called modernization, rationalization, the introduction of scientific technologies, and so on. Not with any great optimism about the impact, but to show that we were doing something. And, you know, the Home Office papers are, 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 are full of that. But I, I think David may have a slightly different reading on that, and a slightly more optimistic reading. So the, those three things, but it's, it seems to me as if what I've been looking at at any rate is simply uh, uh, looking at an unfolding death of my project. You know? And I don't think that is very heavily emphasized in the literature that we have. Yes, you see. Well, some, something that surprised me, just to add to that, was having trawled through all the cabinet notebooks, just how little law and order is discussed in cabinet. <laughs> That's true. You would think it would be much more of a major concern than it in fact is. And for example, this thing I've just been talking about, the Mountbatten report, wasn't discussed in cabinet at all. Until at the end, Callaghan announced that effectively it wouldn't be putting the um, vectors idea in practice. Um, and things like that surprise me constantly. It's the intellectuals monomania to assume that his or her subject is terribly important, but politicians didn't agree. Uh, two surprises. Uh, the first one, just naivety. I'm not a trained historian, so it's therefore uh, it came as a surprise to me to find how few surprises that there were. 
I, I thought that the um, the archives would be, if not stocked full of, they would at least occasionally reveal a smoking gun. <laughs> but I've I've really still yet to find them. Uh, and the second one is, I think I don't know how much of a surprise it is, but the the thing that's interested me, and it would be a subject for further discussion another time, is the role of individual agency. I've been constantly surprised by just how influential individual ministers are, especially secretaries of state, on the kind of tenor and direction of their departments and how a change of an individual makes such, or can make, such a substantial difference. And most important of all, perhaps, was Gerald Gardner. Or at least in the areas that I would know. Is it? Would you want to? Thank you. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up on that. By the way, I'm absolutely fascinating, and I'd look forward to seeing it all in soon. But I wanted to pick up on Paul's point about the uh, about this being a utilitarian project, and simultaneously the, the point you made about distrust of the state, because it set me thinking about something that I was wondering about when you were talking, giving your presentation, which is. What motivated the state's sponsorship and funding and, and, and motivation of criminology within the universities, and most obviously the Institute in Cambridge, but also the very generous funding to the, to the early Centre for Criminology here? And how far was that, in your view, any of your view, the consequence of a recognition precisely of the distrust of the state and the, and the desire to create? an independent body, a cadre of researchers who would, would assess and criticise and validate and do things independently from the state. And how far was it really just part of that utilitarian project about having, having agents in the field to, to collect the data? I suspect Roger could answer that best of all. Well, I would think it's the latter. Right. Myself. I mean, I was wondering whether you, whether you had really come across good examples of where this interface between the state as the uh, funders and promoters of research had sought to constrain the kinds of knowledge and access necessary for that research to be carried out effectively and validly. I mean, that is the thing that we hit upon. This is what we hit upon in Oxford as soon as we started to examine sentencing particular in the Crown Court. That's a, a very great example. Uh, in the parole system, I had actually been a member of the early parole board. When I came to do research on it, we weren't allowed to go and sit and listen to what the parole board said, although TV journalists were allowed in there. I mean, it was astonishingly restrictive. And many, many people who are working on research from an official point of view found that very frustrating. And it's not easy to explain, given Lucia's question. You see what I mean? That, you know, what's the purpose of this? Why are they spending this money on it? Well, I mean, it came up with the welfare state to begin with, I think, in 1948 and the Criminal Justice Bill, when somebody put forward the view is we have to cope with this crime problem. How does, how does criminality fit in with the development of a welfare state? Uh, how can we learn more about crime? What can we do to prevent it and cure it? You know, cure, in inverted commas, it, and we need social scientists and psychiatrists and other people working in that field to help us to find the answers to this question. And it was, of course, a time 
when following on from the 1930s, where there had been, as David said, a great deal of optimism about the prospects of uh, a reformative system that worked. I mean, my very early work of my thesis on the Borstal system just showed that this famous commissioner, Sir Alexander Patterson, uh, really believed that the system was working to cut off recidivism at its roots. We no longer have these adult criminals, recidivist criminals, circulating repetitively through the prison system, um, for which the prison system simply wasn't set up to deal with. So it did, there was a strategy there, and a lot of this research, I think, was connected with the idea of how do we put this strategy into effect. But it, was, it, was all, it wasn't really genuine in many cases. I rather suspect that a lot of the research that was being practiced at the time, we're talking about mid-60s or thereabouts, was not invasive, was not intrusive, it was not likely to expose scandal. That came rather later. I mean, your work on the Crown Court, which hit yeah. upon the private lives of judges a little bit, isn't that right? Which was Well, we weren't allowed to interview judges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when was Terry Morris's work on Pentonville run? 16... Late 50s, early 60s. Early 60s. There was a whole chapter that was uh, censored there in which he had been present at a riot consequent upon an, an execution. And the Home Office line was this was not reported, it did not exist, it could not be, it could not be analysed. So there the were the beginnings, but that, that was because Terry was using uh, the beginnings of a kind of ethnographic yeah, approach. It, became, it really came to a head, didn't it, much later with. Uh, um, Stan and Laurie's yeah. book on psychological survival where, as it were, in a rather covert way, they talked about the, uh, the coping strategies of long-term pr- prisoners in, in Durham. Um, and that sad relations for a long time yeah. between criminology and the homeless. I don't think up until that point anything was regarded as being particularly uh, Contentious or, 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 or prone to generate scandal. You can think of examples where, where research actually supported uh, the political programs of the people. Uh, the, the homicide report, for example, that yeah. came out of the Home Office, which showed that the 57 Act had not made a powerful difference to the rate of uh, murder, was very, very influential, I think. Probably the most successful piece of early work to, to, to affect policy making. Well, sorry. Yes, please. Um, so, uh, thank you guys for coming, for one. Uh, and my question revolves, um, involves, excuse me, um, that the history of criminality appears very white and very masculine and very male. And I have a very um, important question revolving how can we see the fact that, how do we see this in a reflection of the criminology twerk? And what impacts and what has been lost do you think? in the orientation of the discipline because these voices are not present in the discipline from these early ages? Um, or do you think that there wasn't an absence? Well, I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, I talked on a number of occasions about Barbara Wooden, who was a, ma- a woman of, of considerable importance, I think. She taught at, uh, at, at, at Bedford, Bedford College, was Yeah. yeah. Um, there was Pauline Morris, who was uh, a woman of, 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 of some importance. The trio who set up the penal research unit here included Sarah McCabe. So there were, there were a, a, a series of, of, of women to be found, also the Home Office Research Unit. So there weren't many women, but it, there weren't, uh, but it was heavily male. Uh, 
Whites, yes, uh, it probably was. All this came later. There's a, it, an article that influenced me greatly in Social Problems 68, I think, that, that re, a recent article, uh, by Halvin Sussman, talking about the revolt of the client, talking about the way in which subject populations started rising up against their experts and trying to redefine fields in, in psychiatry and so on. That came later, and you get people like Ken Plummer talking about uh, you know, uh, homosexuality, gay men. You, talk, you get people talking about issues of race and so on. Those things weren't in evidence then. It was very do-on-ba-at on the time. Um, and there was very little consultation. I mean, the thing that, one thing that interested me was the setting up of a criminal interest compensation scheme in 1965. Uh, by Leslie Wilkins, uh, not by Leslie Wilkins, no. but he, he informed him, he provided a lot of research for it. Uh, there was no sense of a time that you talked to victims and asked what they needed. You, you knew best. And there was a lot of knowing best by, as, as you were hinting, you know, a rather uh, a, a group of white intellectuals. But I think the gender thing could, could be overstated. Can I add, though, to say the, the, I mean, the point that you raise about both criminal justice and criminology appearing um, very white and very male, which is right, and in many respects they still are, though elements of that are changing, is part of the object of study of the official history as well. So if you just take policing, policing in 1966 was indeed very white and very male. It's now rather less white and significantly less male. And in its relation to women as citizens, um, be they reporting crimes or victims of crimes and so forth, the nature of the world has changed somewhat, not as much as we would like and so forth. So that's, that is part of the object of or the subject of the, of the study too. So it's the problematic is a very, is a very important Still, there are three old white geezers sitting up here. <laughs> so there must be something <laughs> There was work, quite interesting work, being done on race. John Lambert, for example, crime police and race relations, yeah. for example. There were a number of other studies. So it's not as if they didn't they didn't exist. They meant a, a, a real hobby horse of mine is this idea of chronocentrism, the fact that we forget our past and we tend we've obliterated a great deal of the early history of. Uh, Social science research in this in this in this country, including early work on race and race and uh, John Rex did, for example, work on important work on on, on race. Michael Banton. Michael Banton. So that you know, the statement that it didn't exist is a reflection more of, as it were, of institutional myopia than than I think of what might, on you know, closer scrutiny, prove to be the case. Yes, somebody else. Yes, please. Oh, yeah, so I was just thinking back of like the 1960s and reflecting back on international history. I wonder if like there was any influence of like, for example, the Cold War climate or like decolonization around the world by the British colony. Like, did that have an impact on criminal justice policies in the country? Not visible that I could see. Sorry. Jim? Uh, well, I'm struggling to think. They talked about Hong Kong policing, didn't they, at one point, in terms of crowd control? Well, from the 1950s, immigration becomes an an, an issue. Um, And, I mean, earlier I was talking about Jenkins and policing. Jenkins 
Jenkins was also important for his interventions in race relations. Uh, I mean, again, not necessarily the things that he's remembered for, I think. And Frank Soskis, too. And Frank Soskis, also. But I would say, not that I can think of in any major way in the 1960s. Yes, please. Um, I, I think that the analysis that we have in our um, chapter on, on uh, the politics of law and order in the, um, the Kent handbook of criminology uh, would suggest that actually across all of the other obvious policy areas, including foreign policy and so on, you did have a lot of uh, political um, uh, dispute and, and uh, knocking political points to each other by the by the main political parties, but one area which was exempt for a very long time, until um, the early 70s, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact dates, uh, was actually crime and criminal justice. And going back to Lucinda's uh, question about the investment in, in criminology, was that this was a time when there was a sort of consensus that it was preferable to leave it to the experts uh, and to invest in, in that, rather than turn it into a, a, a matter of, of, of political dispute. Uh, that then changed in the 70s, and obviously with the riots of the 80s and so on. You know, it was, it, it, it's been like that ever since. But there, has, there was a consensus which was exceptional at that time uh, around the area of criminal justice between the political parties, which didn't obtain in other policy spheres. And I, I think that that analysis may cover some of these uh, some of these issues. I mean, people want to reference that I don't have Sorry. Yeah, we've got some comments. Well I think I think that's broadly true. But you had some very early uh, signs of differences to come. For example the nineteen sixty four Labour Party uh, working group under Lord Longford, we produced prime a challenge to us all. Uh, you know, it started to draw some links between social and economic conditions and, and yeah, the prime problems. I think one of the things that we cite is if you look at the party manifestos mm -hmm. at each general election, mm -hmm. you can actually see where the watershed comes, where for the first time law and order and criminal justice becomes uh, an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Between the political parties in the in their manifestos coming up to the general election, and it is later than this point. There was a bit that's very no, 1970 the, no, the beginning of it. Yeah, the nineteen seventy nine is the real turning point. It's not sixties. Mm. Until the, part, the point we've been the period we've been covering is still a point where you have. Uh, this consensus, and that may mm. actually explain some of the questions. There's a very interesting framing issue here, is there not? I mean, Francis Heidenzone started saying that the convention, conventional argument that women are not interesting, interesting criminologically because they commit so little crime makes them very interesting indeed. And I think the consensus initially, if we talk about race, was that... Uh, what were called West Indian immigrants were remarkably um, uh, a little proud of crime. I mean, that was, that, that, was, that was the difference between 72 and 74, I think, the, yeah. the Home Affairs Select Committees. But I was thinking that was of, based I was, on Metropolitan Police statistics, which changed over that. Well, I was thinking of John Lambert's work in Birmingham, too. Was it? 
Um, it was mainly it was mainly the difference in the in the, in the stats from the Met. I mean, I've documented that in the in this same book in the chapter yeah. on this and the criminal justice system because that's quite well established when that changed. But that was out with the main debate about Well, I think it's really crucial. I mean, the, the, the point that you make is well made and, and well established, I think, that there was a, a broad bipartisan consensus yeah. about law and order matters, and David Downs, more than anybody's written about that. But the, the, the issue about criminological research and, and experts, I think, is not so much that there was, a, there was a political consensus out of which government was able to say, or necessarily that that was the main thing, able to say, leave it to the experts. It wasn't that at that time it believed that there might be experts who would be able to solve the problems. That's the fascinating thing, and that's what then subsequently disappears. Butler, who was the prime mover behind the Home Office initially, between the Home Office Research Unit uh, and the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge, and also, in a much more minor way, something within the Home Office called the Police Research and Planning Branch, was it just... A, an almost naive believer in the power of science, Wilson's white heat of technology, that if you just were able to put some resources for long enough at the disposal of experts, they would help you solve these problems. That, that I think, sense didn't last all that, all that long. And, I mean, to go back to Roger's question about whether government, um, there were good examples of government standing in the way of research, I've certainly not come across any, but what it didn't necessarily do was in many cases, follow up with resources. So something like the police research and planning branch was a great idea, and, uh, and Butler and others who followed him talked it up as something which would solve the problem of police efficiency and so forth, but they never staffed it with anybody who might, be, who, who might have any obvious expertise, scientific or otherwise, or gave it the resources that might allow it to do such a job, even were such a job possible, or even thirdly, waited to when it had done any research before making political pronouncements about how policing works. And that was much more of the problem with research. There was a moment that was seized in the 60s when I think there was a political consensus wanted to keep to the long grass where some entrepreneurial criminal uh, uh, servants were actually behind promoting the idea that that was the way you could manage it. And, and that was what started the investment in criminological research. Even if subsequently uh, you know, that was not Respected and is increasingly being eroded, and, and you know, research has been sort of skewed and compromised and, and disregarded, and so on. I mean, under Mary Tuck and David Fulmer, I mean, I joined the Home Office in 1988, you know, there's still a very strong tradition of the independence of research, and although there were constraints on, well, you were there too, uh, there were constraints on what you could research, at least there was a tradition where the research outcomes would not be interfered with. And that went pretty soon after that in the 90s. But I think that initial sort of um, seed corn for, for criminological research was a product of that moment in the 60s. Uh, and I think we, we need to understand it in those terms, even if what subsequently happened was the research has had very, very little impact. There, I, I realise we're up running out of time, but there is a story that has not been told, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm the one to tell it, of a time when there were very few criminologists established in uh, what were regarded as the better universities who exercised extraordinary influence, I think, uh, at least in terms of being conservative. Rodzinovich, Terry Morris, uh, Nigel Walker. Um, and 
there were few of them, and they were very busy, and they had a rather grand idea of themselves, and at the same time, knew that they had rather little to offer. And so it was that kind of... And, and there became a great separation, so that the, the, the loss of the Home Office Research Unit seems to be one of the great undocumented uh, tragedies of, of research in this country. Nobody, I, I don't know quite why it was disbanded. I know a little bit of the process, but not much of it. It was doing sterling work, and it's now lost to us. And there's this gulf, I think, between expertise and government, uh, which is really quite novel. I don't know if you agree, Roger. Well, I do. I mean, right up to the 1980s, the Home Office really promoted research in the universities and expanded research and in the internally. universities. And internally. You don't, do you get any money from the Home Office? Hardly anything? No. Whereas, you see, the Oxford Centre was shielded from collapse, we put it that way, uh, by the Home Office. And an agreement that projects would be found and people could be, uh, could have some sense of security of a a career, even if it wasn't an established post. And, uh, you know, people like Mike McGuire, who made such a good name for himself, moved on from project to project to project. And, and the they would make sure that there was work and available. Another, another interesting work. Is, I mean, really pioneering work. You know? Yes. I mean, all the, whole, all the stuff on crime prevention, <coughs> which has arguably paid off in terms of falling crime rates, um, to some degree, at any rate, with was pioneered in the home Yes, absolutely. Pat, Pat Mayhew and John yeah. Clark. The paradox is that the, 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 the greater the numbers of criminologists and the better their expertise, the less influence they have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's perhaps a good point to end on. <laughs> That's a good note. And uh, so, I think Carolyn tells me that there's uh, drinks at the end of the table, those who'd like to stay and chat with our distinguished speakers. I'm sure they'd be, love to have more conversations with you. Um, how long have we got? Uh, oh. 45 minutes? I think that, that would be about right, yeah. So, so do all help yourself. And before we thank our speakers for this evening, can I just remind everybody that on February 4th, Smiller is going to be here um, talking about the myth of the moral, violent crime and democratic politics, which will be absolutely wonderful. So we look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you very much. Well, we thank you. Somebody else writes this to them.